0: Do you want to stay more focused on the right goals in your life or even just figure out what the right goals are for you? Do you want clarity? Do you want better work-life balance? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to Success Through Failure. Welcome to the Success
1: Through Failure podcast, the show that reveals failure as your path to success. You'll listen to intriguing interviews with some of the most successful people on the planet. And learn how their failures became a launch pad for success and how yours can too. Here's your host, former Division I All American wrestler, former Division I head coach, speaker, and personal coach, Jim Harshaw.
0: Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. Today I bring you Don Yeager. I've had tons of amazing guests on this show, well over 100 now, billionaires, astronauts, professional athletes, world-renowned entrepreneurs, and they've shared their insider secrets for success. They've offered everything from top book recommendations to success hacks to action items that you can use today to see results immediately. If you're like me, you love this kind of stuff. and If you're like me, you want to get the Cliff Notes, or I guess these days they call them the Spark Notes. Well, you can get access to the action plans from your favorite guests, like Spartan Race founder Joe DeSena from episode 27, or Navy SEAL Mark Devine from episode 45, or maybe fitness guru Tony Horton from episode 85, plus other amazing tips and tactics to help you get clear on how to get from where you're at to where you want to be. I put all this in one place because you're busy and you want to get what you need quickly so you can move on with your day. Here's what I want you to do. Go to jimharshawjr.com slash action to get instant access to everything I just talked about. That's jimharshawjr.com slash action. And if you're listening to this on iTunes, there are three dots on your screen. Just touch the three dots, select View full description. There, you'll see the link to download all of the incredible resources and action plans that I just mentioned. Now, for today's guest Don is a nationally acclaimed inspirational speaker, longtime associate editor of Sports Illustrated, and author of over 30 books, 11 of which have become New York Times bestsellers. Don left Sports Illustrated in 2008 to pursue a public speaking career that has allowed him to share stories learned from the greatest winners of our generation with audiences as as diverse as Fortune 10 companies to cancer survivor groups. More than a quarter million people have heard Don's talks on what makes the great ones great. And for the listener, as usual, if you don't have time to listen to this entire episode or if you hear something you like but you don't have a chance to write it down, make sure you grab your free copy of the action plan from this episode as well as get access to action plans from all of my episodes. Just go to com slash action. Don, welcome to the show. Jim,
1: thank you very much.
0: So let's just start with a little background on you, Don. Um, kind of, you know, where you were born, where you grew up, kind of the 30,000-foot the view of how you got from there to where you're at now.
1: Wow. Okay. I'll try to be quick with that. <laughs> I was born in born in Hilo, Hawaii, on the big island of Hawaii, which uh, right now is uh, is under siege, a vol- volcanic siege. So yeah, no kidding. Hopefully, um, I've still got friends and, and others there that I stay in touch with, and hopefully I'll... Uh, turns out well, but uh, my father was a preacher, a Methodist preacher, and, uh, ended up bouncing around several places, ended up, um, going to Japan for a little while before moving to Indiana for high school, um, where I went, um, there and, and then also to college at Ball State University, uh, majored in journalism, came out, started my career in Texas, uh, working in San Antonio at the newspaper there, went to Dallas. Uh, then came to Florida uh, before going to Sports Illustrated um, and uh, ultimately uh, was became the associate editor of Sports Illustrated, was there for uh, almost 12 years. And um, uh, during that interim, uh, during that period, started writing books. Um, I, I, I was mentioning to you, my, my 28th book comes out this fall. Yeah, wow, 28th. And I've been fortunate enough that 11 of them have become New York Times bestsellers, which is a... Um, um, a pretty, uh, I mean, if you'd have told me in my lifetime, I'd have one, I'd have been impressed. Yeah, and, that's astounding. So it's a pretty, uh, pretty, it's a, it's a good sign that I've been blessed to work with some really great people is what it really is. Yeah. And so, uh, and now I do between one book a year, I do one book a year and then I do between 60 and 80 speaking engagements a year at corporations throughout the world.
0: And after we hang up on our call here, is it okay to? Uh, or is it a, is it top secret right now? Who you're gonna be talking to next and working with on your next book?
1: Oh no, it's totally uh, it's totally good. My next, Joe Neiman, uh, yeah, next book it comes out in December. We'll be with Joe Neiman, and uh, we've been working together for nearly a year. And he's uh, he's just an amazing man. Been an been an awful lot of fun to to. Uh, it, and coming up next year is the 50th anniversary of his Super Bowl, which is crazy. Wow, fifty! Holy cow. On flies, yeah.
0: So, uh, what's that book going to be like? What's uh, is that going to be? Sort of yeah. a a biography by him or yeah, autobiography?
1: A, a big piece of it is uh, it's autobiographical, but a big piece of the book is his efforts to heal himself, to mm-hmm. work on uh, the challenges of um, of his both physical being and and um, some of the some of the things he's been through, um, and and his work in the last fifteen years to really heal himself. It's it's a pretty powerful story when you think of one of the toughest guys ever to play the game, um, you know, uh, and and ultimately having to be brought to his knees, like all of us have, and and having to figure out how to get back up. So uh, it's a it's it's, I, I have to tell you, it's as inspiring as anything I've ever worked on. So Joe Namath is a
0: guy who you know is a hero to many and a, a legend and an icon. I don't know how much or how little Don you're willing to share about that, but I mean can you, can you tell us a little bit about his story and, and, and what, what, what kind of healing did he have to do?
1: Well, part of it was, uh, you know, he had a high profile incident, uh, where, uh, you know, yeah. in 2000 where he was on, um, on national television, right. Just drunk, uh, because he was healing himself through alcohol. That's what he was doing. And, uh, and he, uh, ends up, uh, uh leaning in on on the reporter Susie Colbert and saying I want to kiss you on national television and it just doesn't get any more humiliating than that um because of the way uh, the the world saw him at that moment and um uh the next day uh Joe began the process of healing himself he and he and he he went to a alcohol treatment hasn't touched a drop since and um just is just you know again it's how often it's how it's just a great reminder, given the the lesson and the message of your podcast here, Jim, that that at the end of the day some of us you know some of us have to be broken down uh completely in order to begin that to begin that rebuild right yeah absolutely and and you know
0: we look at we look at successful people and we don't realize that they're just people too right they're they're people who have struggles and who have you know addictions and challenges and and things of their own that they're that they're dealing with and and we we look at them and, and think that their life is perfect and that they have everything and we look at our own lives and we say oh well i don't have this or i don't have that as opposed to looking at what we do have and and realizing that uh that success in anything is is going to be a challenge and uh, that doesn't automatically be mean that that the rest of your life is going to be great you know everybody's you know everybody wants to be rich, right? Everybody wants to make more money, but it's like, and they think that's going to heal everything else. You know, if I make more money, I'll, you know, my marriage will be better. Or I'll, if I make more money, then I'll, then I'll join a gym. Right. And it's like, it's, it's no, it's, it's like, there's each of these individual areas of our lives that, uh, even if you're a great football player and an icon, um, there may be challenges in other areas of your life. And that's, it's one of the things that we reveal quite a bit on this show, Don is, is those challenges and those struggles. And, um, I imagine in your job working at Sports Illustrated, you were around some incredible names, incredible iconic names and legends that everybody listening would recognize. And, and I'm sure you heard, you know, both sides of some of those stories. Especially, you know, you wrote some of those stories and have written a lot of those books. So, who who were some of the big names you came into contact with through your work at Sports Illustrated?
1: Ah, uh, gosh. Well, I mean, from the athletic side, just you know, probably just about anybody that your listeners would think of in that category of high performing and great. Uh, but, and then I had the opportunity to go deeper with some, um, John Wooden, uh, the coach, the great coach at UCLA and I worked together for 12 years and we wrote a book together, um, had an opportunity and maybe one of my most cherished, uh, opportunities was to work with Walter Payton, the running back at the Chicago bears. Um, Walter was my hero growing up and, and, uh, and I was invited by Walter to live with him uh, and his family for the last 10 weeks of his life while he was dying and to write his autobiography. Um, so I've just had the, you know, just Michael Lore the kid from the blind side, uh, John Smoltz, you name them. I've, I've just been lucky enough to get a chance to, uh, have them ask me to, um, dig deep and tell the story. So having spent so much time around
0: incredible people, incredibly successful athletes, you talk a lot about, Don, you talk a lot about what makes the great ones great. So what is it? What's that one secret? What makes the great ones great? And uh, obviously, it's not just one secret, but, but what are those things that, that differentiate them?
1: Well, so I will tell you the, 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 the genesis of that title of that book and, and that, that speech that I give, which is about habits of high performance, um, really it, it dates back to, um, I, I from college. My father, as I mentioned, preacher, just a man of great wisdom. Um, uh, we're, we I'm getting ready literally to drive from our home in Indianapolis, uh, to my first job in Texas. And my dad, uh, standing in the driveway said, you know, son, um, uh, because of the profession you've chosen, you will end up in the presence of some really incredible people over the course of your lifetime. That's what journalists get the opportunity to do, Right. Uh, and he said, you should make sure there's always one question you ask that will benefit you. You should always make sure, yes, you need to do what you need to do for your audience and your readers, but ask one question of each one of these people that will make you better. And ultimately I decided to make it the same question for everybody. And that question was, if you could name one habit, what would that habit be? Give me one thing that allowed you to separate yourself from everyone else. And I asked that question over the course of 25 years of about 2,500 coaches and, and, and athletic champion types, uh, business leaders. I asked it, I asked it from a of a lot of folks and kept a whole series of notebooks just on their answers, uh, to that question. And, um, and when I sat down a few years ago, it was to try to look at all those notebooks and say what answers came up most frequently. Uh, and the number one answer that came up was that it, some stage in their life, every one of these winners learned to hate losing more than they loved winning. Um, But they accept, they expected to win, frankly, you know, that's kind of where their mind was. They, they had, they, they imagined winning at every, at every turn failure. um, They had to make sure failure hurt. And, um, uh, and the way they did that, frankly, uh, was by, very early learning to stop making excuses when you fail. Um, that, that is the way we, um, it's the way we as parents sometimes soothe things over for our children, right? It's the way we is, uh, we, we try to make ourselves feel better about failures. We, we blame somebody or we got something, some answer for it and the truly great ones turn that switch off. Uh, they don't allow themselves uh, to get to the excuse mode because they know that the second you blame someone else, you never own your failure, right? And they'll only get better if they learn to own them.
0: I know that when I was competing, you know, and I, you know, in my TEDx talk, I talk about my failures as an athlete that eventually led to my success. And you mentioned making sure your failure hurt, and I I remember distinctly my after my sophomore season ending my ending my season at the national championships and failure, I actually wrote down all of the pain that I felt in my heart, all of the pain, and I wanted to keep that, I wanted to retain that emotional struggle that I was in in that moment, so that when there was a morning where I didn't feel like Getting up early and going to work out, or if I just was uh, having a bad week, a bad day, and just didn't feel motivated, I would look at that and I would remember that pain because I never wanted to remember that pain again. Um, you know, you talk about hating losing. How, how do you how do you cultivate that that hate of losing? Because I think I think I think some people kind of brush it under the rug, or they say, you oh, know, that's okay, I'll, I'll I'll do it next time. I mean. How do you, how do they cultivate that that hate of losing and does that um I think from the outside looking in it might be able to say well well that's that's kind of the negative side of, of something why don't we look at the the love of winning tell tell me a little bit about that
1: well so so i I'll, I'll go in reverse order of your question there I mean everyone enjoys winning right so no one there's no one who doesn't enjoy winning so that's not but so that's the default position all of us are in, um, and so where they don't want to find themselves is, uh, man, I just I just love to win. I just love what what they discovered was, and, and again, this is general. I'm being general, but I'm also I can I can name off specific conversations with people, but but they what they said was that um, the truly great do by and large believe. In themselves, to a place where winning doesn't give them the joy; it gives other people, right? Mm. It doesn't give them. They, they they don't. That's the normal. That's the standard. They kind of expect it, right? And and you could argue that that's unhealthy, but they argue that that's what exceptionalism is about, right? It's a it's about being so good you should expect to win, um, but but not expect to win uh, uh, without um, uh, expect to win without having to put the effort in. Right. I mean, that's not what they mean. It's not like uh, teaching your kid, you should show up expecting to win. No, you have to, but it's a byproduct of doing all the things that allow you to expect to win. Um, and, and, and when that happens, then yes, it feels good because winning feels good for everybody. So the key, the key to that, and, this, this, and now we're reverting back to the first part of your question, and, and, I, and I shared kind of the beginning part of the answer, the, and which is the, the, probably the lion's share of what they talk about, is that the way you learn to hate losing is by not pinning it on other people, right? And how often do we hear people say, well, the court was slippery, um, the referees were bad. The, um, uh, you know, the other side, uh, in the negotiation had an advantage, you know, uh, we, rather than saying, you know what, um, I'm blaming no one, I'm owning this failure and I will, I do not want to feel this again. What do I have to do? What do I have to do to not feel this again? Rather than allowing themselves to get into the blame game, they go so when you talk about what you did, right? That you chronicled what it was that that the pain felt like, that puts you in that upper five percent. Because most people prefer to blame someone else when they don't get what they want, right? Mm, yeah. It is our it is sadly, it is the default position. For the majority, and unfortunately, it's that habit is taught early by parents, right? <laughs> who sure. Are, who every time a child fails, they they they've given them a reason to not believe the failure's theirs, and that that's just unhealthy. And it's especially unhealthy if you want to play life as a high perform live through live life as a high performer. So, how do
0: you? cultivate that expectation to win because we go through life and there's there's failure there's struggle and you talked about you know like parents who I'm a parent of 4 and it's hard to see my kids struggle and to fail and but but it's that those struggles and those failures that are necessary to build resilience to build the buzzword of today is grit and through that through the struggle through the failure how do you cultivate the expectation of winning despite or maybe because of these failures, these struggles, the Walter Paytons of the world, how do they become great versus others who go through the same challenges and go through the same struggles? Um, and, and their mindset, their mindset becomes, you know, maybe one of excuses or maybe just one of like, well, I'm just not good enough, or it's just not meant to be for me, versus others, the great ones who say, I expect to win. They just have that mindset, that deep, deep belief. Even if they have the same proof out there in the world that everybody else has, the same world, they're grown up in the same world, the same you know youth sports, the same schools, et cetera, the same society, they're hearing the same messages, but they go through the world with this expectation that I'm supposed to win. That's what I do.
1: Well, I mean... So first off, we are talking about exceptionalism, right? So we're not talking about that this is the mindset of everyone. Sure. So we're talking about the high performers, here. right? Um, and by and large, most high performers have experienced more victory than than other people, right? That's how they got to become high performers. But 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 the other thing, and you know, I know you've referenced it in your discussions. A big piece of it is. Is who's who's chirping in your ear sure. right? and what are they saying in your ear what are they saying in your ear and and then and then how does that translate to what you're saying to yourself um, uh, I own a I own a couple of companies here in Tallahassee Florida uh, we have a we have a court we have a business model around no excuses right so if anyone in our organization uh, begins the excuse-making process when we're discussing something that didn't go our way. Everyone is um, is licensed to call them out for it. Right? <laughs> that's Every, great. Everyone I love here it. Here has the ability to say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! That sure sounds like an excuse." <laughs> you know. And by by making that our culture, right? What what happens is. We take every opportunity while other people are spending their their spinning cycles, um, you know, trying to blame someone. We're spinning. We're using our cycle, our art, that same exact amount of time to evaluate what we could have done different or better. And so that's the that's a real key right there. Right. We all have a finite time as a finite gift. What do you do with it? If you're the every moment that you're blaming someone else is a is a you're wasting your gift And and the key here is how do you manage that conversation internally? Externally, how do you manage the conversation? And 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 at a certain place you begin to believe i'm not doing all the things necessary Wow, that success! Yep, that came our way because we did the things necessary, and you know, doesn't surprise us. We're not we're not shocked anymore by success when some people are frankly just they they they're, they're giddy, right? Um, because they because they had no they, they didn't expect it to happen. So again, I, I hope the conversation's making sense. But a big piece of it is. And you talked about your coach, right? Uh, Playing a role. A Big piece of it is not just how we talk to ourselves, but who's talking to us and how is that conversation going?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I talk about the environment of excellence as one of the main main tenets of my teaching. Is is you know who are you surrounding yourself? What what are the messages that you're allowing into your life? Whether they're Coaches and coworkers and friends, et cetera, but also media. You know, what is the media that you're allowing into your life or or, or blocking out of your life? Because there's plenty, plenty of of negativity out there, and, and and by definition, we're surrounded by average. So how do we how do we change that? How do we filter out the mediocrity and allow in only the 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 strongest messages that are going to propel us forward, and sometimes those messages are hard to swallow. Right? They're they're no excuses, and they're uh, they're taking full responsibility and accountability, which can be hard.
1: And you know, and you hit on a really great point there, which is um, uh, about who you surround yourself with. And the key to all of this, you know, again, there, there's no magic bullet here. So, I mean, I love your opening question, but it was that idea of like, what's the one thing? There really yeah, is.
0: Everybody wants to there. know the secret. The secret. <laughs> he,
1: but the key to all of it, because again, all of this is just—it just makes sense, right? When Stephen Covey wrote Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, what he really did was he studied a hundred years of literature on high performance, and what he saw was that the messages were essentially all the same, yeah. And they were for a hundred years, yeah. And and in that hundred years, they they didn't really vary from these seven habits; they just were said differently, right? And so he tried to frame them properly, and and. And in the years since he wrote Seven Habits, the the messages haven't changed. They're all the same. One key, though, to all of it is intentionality, right? You have to be intentional. You have to, just, just as you said, with who you surround yourself with, that is intentional discussion. That's an intentional process for you. You don't let people wander into your inner circle. You're intentional about who's there. You don't let people uh, determine what you, you, you don't just randomly watch whatever YouTube tells you comes next on your feed. You are intentional looking for what it is that you want, how you want to inspire yourself or how you want to feed yourself, right? That's what this is. And being intentional is, um, is a place where that's that's hard work, right, because it's easier to let the world feed us it's easier to let the world come to us, sure to let be things inten- happen right be in, be intentional, yeah,
0: and long time listeners will be familiar with with this, but this idea of living intentionally and being intentional, uh, I've defined this as the, the productive pause, and the definition is a short period of focused reflection around specific questions that will lead to clarity of action and peace of mind. It's this idea of getting off the treadmill of life, making conscious choices of, for example, who you surround yourself with, so that you end up with this clarity of action, because so many people that I talk to, Don, are... are They don't know what's next. They're not sure what the next thing they should do or how do they get to the next level. But when you, when you hit the pause button, ask yourself the hard questions, the right, you know, one of the questions might be around this philosophy of no excuses that you talk about in your companies is what was my role in this failure or what, what can I do to overcome this challenge that seems to be outside of my control? What's my role in it or what could I possibly do? Hypothetically, if it were possible to overcome that, what could I do? And when you ask yourself these specific questions, it leads to clarity of action and peace of mind. It's not easy, but it leads to clarity of action and peace of mind. This living intentionally. It's not just clicking the next, you know, like you said, the next YouTube video in your feed. It's actually being intentional about how you make choices and how you live. Awesome. I agree. And so Don, we talked about sort of these things that, that make the great ones. Great. What about great teams? Is there any difference there?
1: Oh, absolutely. So so again and as someone involved actively in athletics as you are um you'll you'll get this um i as uh, 10 years ago when i retired from si um i began doing these corporate speaking engagements on individual high performance and what we we're talking about here just just now and uh several years ago one of the executives at 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 microsoft said to me you know as much as we enjoy this we'd really want to know why are some teams capable of being relevant year in a year out? Why are, why are the St. Louis Cardinals always there? What, what, what is it about the Boston or the new England Patriots or the today, the golden oh, you state? I had Sports. to say
0: the Patriots. I'm a Steelers fan. Ah, that hurts. a was bit. Just a little well, bit.
1: the Steelers were, the Steelers <laughs> were that had that, had that mojo for a long time. Sure, no, I know. But, but what is it about, um, that allows some teams to be consistently relevant? And, um, and so I, I, I took I w- went on a journey and actually um, I sat down w- and set set up several criteria that I wanted to understand. Here's what here's what a great team looked like to me, right? Here's, and it was by and large performance based because that's ultimately how we define greatness. Some days, and I and I sat down to then reach out to those teams and say, Would you allow me to come study you? And, uh, and it was fascinating. They, they were all Nick Saban, Mike Krzyzewski, Tom Izzo. They all said yes. They said, come learn, but do us a favor. Whatever you learn collectively, we want to hear from you what it is you got, right? Um, and it was a wonderful five-year journey that uh, took me all over the country just looking at the best teams. Um, and the, the number one answer that came up over and over again uh, was that the best teams have a collective sense of purpose. They, um, they're in service of something or someone, or there's, there's something that they're out there to achieve and do that they know that they cannot do, um, that none of them could achieve individually. And it's not just that they know what that is, but the great teams feel it. They feel who they're in service of. They feel that sense of, of, um, duty or, um, uh, connection to those who they, um, they are actually, that their work product ultimately will benefit.
0: Don, my listeners like to get concrete action items out of these, these interviews. So if, if, if you have a coach listening or a manager or an entrepreneur or a leader and they say, okay, uh, I understand. The best teams have a collective sense of purpose. How do I create that? How do I cultivate that? You, you mentioned culture. You have this culture of no excuses at your companies. How do you cultivate this sense of collective sense of purpose if you're a manager or a leader of any type?
1: So, uh, I it's actually so here. I, I I know you love to throw things in your show notes and other things. If anybody uh, emails me uh, to Don 2 which is uh, my personal email address Don2, Don 2 o n the number two at team like, like as in basketball team 180.com team 180.com I'll send you them a series of questions that they can distribute among their team that will help them start to get their arms around whether or not they what, what it is that the team sees as their collective sense of purpose. And that's a real value, right? Is that ability to start with, you have to know where you're starting before you can really start working on something. Um, Ask your team, who are we in service of? Why does what we do matter? And if we fail to do, to deliver on our commitment to, to those who we're in service of what happens to them? Um, Those, there's a series of questions that you can ask yourself and your team. And then then, Then the the feel it piece is all right. um, So I'll I'll give you an example. I serve on the national board of the Make-A-Wish Foundation, right? Uh, It's my favorite charity. I love it. And as easy as it is to say, of course, we know who we're in service of. We're in service of kids with life-threatening illnesses, right? And their families. They don't miss a moment, opportunity as an organization to bring in families who have recently experienced the wish to speak to us as a board and to take five to 10 minutes and tell us about the wish that was recently granted to them and how it changed their family dynamic. Now, as that conversation is wrapped up, there isn't anyone in the room who doesn't feel why what we do matters. Yeah. You may know it intuitively because you're a member of the board, right? You've read the you've read the website. I know why what we do matters, but sitting in the presence of someone who just went through it helps me feel why what it do why what it does matters.
0: Yeah, so you're connecting that logic to emotion where you know something as a fact and then you actually feel it in your heart.
1: Yep. You got you got this the great medical device company out of Minneapolis, Medtronic. Medtronic makes implantable devices that keeps people alive, right? Now, everyone who works at the company knows that at the end of the day, what they are, they're in the life-saving business. But once a year at one of their corporate events where all the employees are gathered, they bring in six families and they let the families talk to their employees about why what they do matters and how it mattered to them. And every year some young woman steps up and says, thank you to their employees It's because your product did exactly what you said. My daddy walked me down the aisle this summer. Now, if you don't feel differently about working there after hearing that conversation, Hmm. you're not living. Right. Yeah. And so the point is, we all could talk about knowing your why. That's just the beginning. That sounds good. That's a really good conversation. But feeling your why is where it gets real.
0: Don, you've had an incredible career. You've started off as a journalist and and you know Sports Illustrated, and um, now you're speaking across the country, writing amazing books. Eleven New York Times best selling books. What habits do you have, Don, that you feel have really set you apart and have helped you achieve the level of success that you've achieved?
1: Well, a big big piece of it is I am a um, I'm a I'm a Learner by nature. I love to learn. I love to read and try to understand Uh, Long before I went to work at Sports Illustrated I used to argue that anybody that wanted to be a great writer should read Sports Illustrated because the writing there was so crisp and amazing and and descriptive and the word choices were were uh, to me amazing and I used to um, I used to read those sentences and try to ask myself, I wonder what kind of question the journalist asked to, to elicit that answer. Hmm. And so I'm, I am wired to be a learner, and that to me, I think, is what is probably my, my greatest attribute, my greatest habit. I think I, I'm constantly learning from people. And uh, there isn't any day in which I don't wake up excited because today I'm gonna learn something new that's going to that's gonna make me think differently tomorrow.
0: Don, can you tell us about a time where you failed? You've had incredible success, um, but along this journey uh, of success, uh, I found that there are failures that when exposed, it helps those listening realize that their failures, their struggles, their obstacles, their setbacks are just a normal part, a normal step on the path to success. Can you tell us about a time where you failed and maybe felt that that self-doubt, that that hopelessness that comes with failure and how you were able to move through that?
1: Sure. Sure. I was um, uh, in my last newspaper job uh, was with the newspaper in Jacksonville, Florida. I was the political editor of the newspaper. So that's why I live in Tallahassee. And, um, and, uh, and I wrote my first book and it was doing pretty well. And I was getting the opportunity to do a fair amount of publicity around it. And, um, and in that entire effort, um, I, I, I got into a dispute with the bo- with my boss, uh, the, the person who, um, you know, who I worked for. And I, uh, and I, I didn't manage that well. And ultimately in my arrogance and my belief that I was, um, that I was really, really important and valuable. I overestimated what the company would put up with for me. And I think a lot of people do that. Right. And, uh, uh, and I got fired and I remember they made me drive over to Jacksonville to get fired, uh, which is <laughs> two and a half hours from where I lived. And, uh, so I get fired and I'm driving back and I spent the first hour and a half crying, you know, just driving back, crying, just not sure. i you know, not sure what's going to happen next. Where am I going? How am I going to pay my bills? Um, and I pulled over and, uh, I I know, I can remember what exit it was in. It was at, and I actually kind of pulled myself together and began thinking, you know, that was, that happened, right? I, I earned it and that happened. And, um, what do I do next? What, What, rather than fretting, let's start planning and, um, by the time I arrived home back in Tallahassee, I had a plan for what I was going to do next. And it wow. was, you know, an hour and a half later. Wow. And I was making phone calls when I got home on what and it led to my next book. Um, it led to a career in a different direction. And um, a few weeks later, I actually got an offer to come back to the newspaper. I got I, They offered me my job back. Wow. Uh, but by then I was, I'd, I'd already intellectually and uh, I'd moved on and, you know, so I I think a big piece of things, you know, failure is real. And in in this case, mine was self-inflicted, right? Um, but, uh, you know, coach K at Duke is really famous for his whole discussion around next play, right? Um, doesn't matter what happened in the last play it's the next play that matters and often you know we think about that when we think about failure right next play what do i do next sometimes the most important next play you make is the play you make after you've had a successful play right is we we're busy running down the court celebrating and uh, and our opponents sneaking up on us really quickly so next play what do you do um how do you shift and where's that shift mine occurred at a at, you know, at a, uh, at a, in a McDonald's parking lot at an exit right off of interstate 10. <laughs> uh, but where, where can people find their shift? And there, you, you know, I think I took the appropriate amount of time, uh, for regret and fear and all the other, because that's what I needed. I needed an hour and a half to cry. And then I needed the rest of that time to move on.
0: And I want the listener to really understand this. This is a fascinating example of a productive pause. You did it right after a failure that, that left you out of a job and in tears, wondering what's next. And and you grieved over it and and you after this failure, so like you said, self-inflicted and and Don made a decision to say, Okay, what's next? Right? So for the listener, think about think about your this, this failure or failures in your past that's holding you back right now, stopping you from making a decision or stopping you from trying something or taking a risk or doing that thing that you know you want to do so bad, but you failed. You dipped your toe in the water and you failed. Or maybe, or maybe, you, you, maybe you went a whole, whole way in and you failed. You got fired. And what, what's your reaction? Have you taken the chance to ask yourself, what's next? Or what did I learn from this? And how can I get better from it? And that's just an amazing example, Don. I appreciate you sharing that with us. And that's a, that's a tough moment. And, and it's interesting to hear that, you know, you get failed from a job as a journalist and you go into this incredible uh, career as a journalist. So thanks for sharing that, Don.
1: Well, it's not, it's not always the, the moment I'm, I'm, I'm most proud of, <laughs> um, but, but I, I, I think I, I feel pretty comfortable with what happened Next,
0: yeah, and it's interesting. Also, to hear that that so many times when somebody shares a story of failure, it turns into this this gift that they didn't even realize. So there's this gift that came from this because you started making phone calls, you started taking action, and it led to. And then you get your job offer back, and you're like, "Well, it's too late. I'm actually too far down this other even better path that you wouldn't have discovered had you not been fired." So that's uh, just a, a a point of that story to to keep in perspective for the listener. So that's failure. And your next failure, tomorrow, next week, next year, whenever it comes, when that door closes, another one opens. So keep walking down the path. Don, thank you so much for making time to come on the show. I'm going to have a link for the listeners to uh, take a look at all your books. I'll have your Amazon book page there with all, all of your, your author's page link, link there. So anybody here can, can check out all of the books that Don has. Um, Don, Take a minute to promote yourself where can we find you follow you check out your books elsewhere etc
1: thanks I, I appreciate that I, I you know and and really when I look at when I look at your audience and I, and I and I as much as I read to try to understand who would be listening here you know my, my goal was to challenge them to, to really think about being great every day right um, that this is a daily that yesterday's greatness doesn't really. Uh, it's not, it's not indicative of today's opportunity for success, right? Um, we have to, we have to make this a daily, a daily ritual. And, um, uh, and if there's anything I could do to help them, um, my website, Don Yeager.com, which I know you'll reference in your notes. Uh, just, I, I love to stay in touch. I, I write a column every week for Forbes, uh, on these topics and, and this and I'd love to be in their in their circle. so if they would uh, they'd add me, I'd be grateful. Excellent and for the listener I will have links
0: to uh, link to his website, link to some of his articles and uh, make it easy for you to find Don as well as his email address there, Don 2 at team180.com I'll have that in the action plan as well. Don, thank you so much for making time to come on the show. My honor. And for the listener, until next time, take the time to get clear on your goals and embrace failure as a stepping stone on your path to success.